Romans chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 1, and my hope this morning is that we can focus our own hearts and our, uh, our, our mission this year around proclaiming the gospel to the lost, to those who need it. And it's very fitting that we're going to begin the new year in Romans chapter 10, which I think is one of the greatest evangelistic chapters in the Bible. And, uh, and we're starting that this morning. And before we get into Romans chapter 10, Paul takes us in Romans chapter 9, these last couple verses, into a brief exploration and a simple answer as to why the lost miss Jesus. And so as we gear our hearts... To, to, to take the gospel to the lost in this year, let us just pause for a moment and see today why the lost miss Jesus. And that's the title of my sermon, and it comes here from Romans 9. Follow along as I read verse 30. It says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Give us a heart and prayer that the lost may be saved. May we come to Christ this morning as a refuge. May we find in him a place of security and stability. God, I pray that you would help me to speak your truth, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts to receive it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I read a story of how researchers clipped cash to a tree branch they put it right in the middle of a walking path, right at head level, so that as people are walking down this trail, their eyes would be directly uh, level with, with the money. And then they observed 396 people walking this trail. And what they discovered is that the vast majority missed the cash directly before their eyes. 94% of them were on their phones, distracted. And many of them, in the last minute, looked up and saw the branch in front of their face, looked directly at the cash, and ducked, completely missing what was before their eyes. How can people miss Jesus? Answer, the same way that people miss cash, 
tied to a tree branch directly before their eyes. When you're not looking for it, cash evidently looks a lot like leaves. Psychologists call this phenomenon inattentional blindness, meaning we are distracted by something else, and therefore we don't see what we're not looking for. We assume, we believe that we're going to see leaves, and so we see leaves, all the while it is cash that we are looking at. We're not actually blind, but our attention is focused elsewhere, and therefore we miss what is right before us. Why do the lost miss Jesus? Well, Jesus could be presented, even this morning, for some of you, directly in front of your, in front of your face, and you could miss him. Why? Well, one reason is distractions. You know, literally, you will have people who uh, sit in churches their whole life and have opportunity after opportunity, but they're just distracted. They're distracted by their phones. They're distracted by their other thoughts and ideas. They're distracted by everything else, and they completely miss Jesus week after week. But others, in a much more subtle way, just distracted by life. They just don't understand. They, they, I mean, Jesus is what they need, and they, they, don't, they don't see him because they don't think they need him. That's what we're looking at today. Uh, I'm preaching this morning to, of course, Christians you know, who, who, who see Jesus to be a, a rock of refuge. I mean, the, the fact that most of you are here is because of that very truth, that, that Christ is your refuge. And so you get up after staying up till midnight or later, and you come to church this morning. Why? Because Christ is worth it. He's your refuge. But some of you might not be a Christian, and we're so glad that you're here. And what I, I want, I'm, I'm also preaching to you, and, and I want you to see that Christ while he is offered as a, a rock of security this morning, very well, if you miss him, could just simply be a rock of stumbling. And I want to invite you to come into the refuge with us. But So as we explore this question, why the lost miss Jesus, really, I guess what I'm saying is, is my hope is that I, I hit both of those crowds. And, and it's also uh, to lead us to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. You see, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 10, my heart is that they would be saved. So this entire time, Paul has been talking about, in chapter 9, the Jews who are missing Christ, and he's said some pretty hard things. He says that only a remnant of Israel will be saved. That's pretty hard. But Paul is not being harsh. His, his apparent bite is softened by his heart that we see in chapter 10. His heart is that they might be saved. Now, could that be said of you this morning? Could it be said that your heart is that the lost may be saved? As we are here on the first of the year, as we are gearing our hearts toward mission in 2023, before Paul sends out his own reader on mission in chapter 10. He pauses, and we pause this morning. 
to understand why it is that the lost miss Jesus. You see, if we don't understand why they're missing Jesus, then we're going to miss our solution. We're going to miss our strategy. We're going to miss our approach as we go with the gospel to the lost. So why do the lost miss Jesus? Two, two simple reasons I want to show you from this text. Number one, it's because grace is overlooked. And number two, it's because Jesus is offensive. Number one, grace is overlooked. In verse 31, at the end of chapter 9, Paul explains that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, yet they did not succeed in reaching that righteousness. Why? He tells us, because they, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, who is Israel? You might remember that God called a pagan named Abram, and, and he called him out of the land of Ur, and he said, I'm going I'm to make a covenant with you. Through your seed, I'm going to bless all of the nations, and I'm going to give you a child, and you're going to have as many descendants as you can possibly imagine. Just look at the stars in the sky. That, that will number your descendants. The problem is, is that Abram was an old man. He did not have a child. As the story goes on, God miraculously gives Abraham a child, and then that child gives birth to a son, and his, or his wife gives birth to a son, and his name is Jacob. And Jacob gives, uh, uh, has Joseph, and Joseph eventually ends up bringing Jacob into the land of Egypt. Jacob himself is renamed Israel. And so now Israel and his family is in Egypt. And there for 400 uh, plus years, the family grows into a great people. They're so great and so vast that the Egyptians turn against them and say, we need to enslave them and ultimately we need to kill them. We need to make them extinct. They're known as the Hebrews. And God raises up one of them. One of these Israelites from among them named Moses. And Moses leads the people of Israel, or the Hebrews, he leads them out of bondage. He leads them out of slavery. And now where are they? They're in the wilderness for 40 years. The people of Israel, the Jews, they will later be called. The people of Jacob, the Hebrews, in the wilderness. And for the first time, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for the first time, they see this like awesome glory of God as God through thunder and lightning meets with Joseph, I'm sorry, meets with Moses, and he gives Moses his law. Moses comes down the mountain, and he has now a law for the people. Uh, now, fast forwarding, through a man named Joshua, Israel gets into the promised land, and God told them that as they obey the law, they can live in the land, and if they disobey the law, God owns the land, and so he's going to evict them. And so for many years, they live in the land, and for the, really for the first time, as a nation state, meaning the law of their land is the law of God, what we call the Mosaic law. Now, as the story goes on, they've got first judges that rule them, and then they have kings that rule them. And, and, and eventually, they get so rebellious, and they're so bad that God says, you, 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 your worship is a stench to me. 
and he removes them from the land, and they go into captivity. Eventually, over time, their captors send them back into their desolated land and allows them to rebuild. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and now we are at the time of Jesus. By this time, Israel, the Jews, are, are living in the land. They're back in Israel. They've got the Mosaic law that they're abiding by. However, they are under the Roman Empire. And this created a whole new dynamic for them. They are oppressed while living in the land, which arose then during this time, a whole bunch of teachers and a whole bunch of traditions and a whole bunch of rabbis who basically said this, if we are able to follow this law that was given to us on Mount Sinai, if we're able to follow it perfectly, even just for a day, God would usher in his kingdom and Rome would be no more the nations would be forever done away with, and we would be able to live as the people of God based on our ability to obey the law. Jesus comes along, and he says things to them that sounded crazy. He basically said, there is no amount of law following that you can do that would ever bring you the kingdom of God. But you must repent. You must repent and turn. The kingdom of God, pointing to himself, is among you. He said crazy things such as, I have fulfilled the law. Law fulfillment is found in him. He said crazy things such as, if you're not born again, you will have no place in the kingdom of God. And you must come through faith. In him. Well, after his death, burial, and resurrection, many Jews did follow Jesus, and that's how the early church was born. But by the time we get to Paul's writings, this is three, four decades later, by the time we get to Paul's writings, um, many of, if not most, of the Jews have hardened against Christianity. And they've hardened their hearts against it. They said, this is not us. They've rejected the Mosaic law. They saw Christians as just completely like, you know, we, we are the people who have been following the law. We are the people that are self-righteous. And they began looking at the church saying, this doesn't make any sense because the nations are flowing into the church. And they're not people who have followed the law. So how is it possible that they could have righteousness and you're going to tell me that I don't have righteous, righteousness? This was a dilemma for them. And so Paul then, in verse 30, addresses it. He says this, what shall we say then? Look at it. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, think about it. These are pagans. These are idol worshipers. These are the people who worship the plethora of Roman gods. These are the people, many of whom would have participated, 
participated in ritualized prostitution. Uh, they would have been extortioners. They would have committed sexual immorality of every kind. They may have had multiple wives. They may have been abusive to their wives and to their children. That was their background. That was their past. They never observed the Sabbath. They, they don't even know the Mosaic law. And they're the ones that are flowing into the church? He says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. They, 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 they actually now are righteous before God. That is, he explains it, a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would have led to righteousness, a.k.a. if they had perfectly followed it, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. You see, Israel sought self-righteousness. Israel here, and I don't mean every Jew, this is not an anti-Semitic sort of uh, passage. He's talking about the majority of, uh, of, of, of Jewish uh, people of his day who rejected Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that, that they missed the point of the law. The point of the law was to point them away from themselves because I can't follow it to point them to a Savior. And they missed it. And these Gentiles, who don't deserve it, have it. Look, the first problem that your lost friends have with your religion is that they don't think you deserve it. They look at you and they think, your life is not that much better than mine. You might be a little more strict you might be a little more moral than me, but all in all, like to say that you're going to heaven and I'm not, like we're not that different. And that's the biggest boggling, mind-boggling thing for them. How is it, why do you think, this is why they think you're so judgmental. Because you think you're that much better than them. That you're going to heaven and they're not. Based on what? You don't deserve it. And you know why many of them don't know any better? It's because you haven't told them. It's because I haven't told them. It's because we haven't clarified it for them. You know, you get what I'm saying? Like, if you keep your mouth shut, and you don't say anything, and you let them think whatever they, they want to think about you, it's kind of on us that we've never explained to them grace. You see what I'm saying? So what do we do? Tell them your story. Tell them, you are a sinner. You are no different than them. Like you were born in iniquity. You, you were a self-seeker. You made gods out of everything, out of your money, out of your job, out of your family, out of your, your ideas, out of your ideals. But then you tell them about Jesus, who was born to die who lived a life of righteousness on your behalf, who then walked that way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, and he, he had a, a crown of thorns crushed into his skull after being 
whipped, and then he had a cross thrown onto his shoulder, and he walked up the hill of Mount Calvary. And there on Golgotha, Jesus suffered and he died. And as he suffered, he suffered in your place. He died in your place. Yes, you deserve death. You don't deserve heaven. And he took death on his own, in his own body on the tree. He who knew no sin, add scripture in it. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then three days later, the grave was empty. God rose him from the dead. It's like the great coronation of a king. God raises him from the dead. He says, this is my son. He is the king. And so then we invite our friends to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus just like we did. You see, what part of any of that good news began with me? What part of that began with you? Like Alistair Begg said, he said, you know, when you're ever asked that famous question, why should I let you into heaven? God says, why should I let you into heaven? If you ever begin your answer in first person, you're going in the wrong direction. God says, why should I let you into heaven? Well, because I uh, am a good person, because I go to church, because I pray, because I obey you, because I do my best, because I have faith, because I believe. Now he says, the right answer begins with the third person. Why should I let you into heaven? Because he said I can come. Because he lived a life of perfection on my behalf. Because he credited his own righteousness to my account. Because he died on the cross for my sins. Because he rose from the dead. The work of your salvation is him. It's not us. It doesn't begin with us. It's not about our works. It's about him. That's why Christ is our refuge. So to you, he is light. He is life. He is resurrection. He is healing. Well, then why would the lost miss it? If Christ is so good, and if he is our refuge, and as we, as we proclaim Christ to our friends, how could they possibly miss it? Well, here's the answer. To you, he is a refuge. But to them, he is offensive. Why? How can Christ, if, if, if God is offering such great salvation, how can Christ be offensive? How could that become a stumbling block? So my second point, first point is this. Grace is overlooked. The second point is, why did the lost miss Jesus? It's because Jesus is offensive. John Calvin put it like this. He said, to us, he is light, life, resurrection, and healing. But how is he all of these things except that he illuminates the blind, restores the lost, quickens the dead, raises up those who are reduced to nothing, cleanses those who are full of filth, cures and heals those infected with diseases. What he means by this is that in order to believe that Jesus is light, life, resurrection, and healing, 
we have to admit that we are blind, lost, dead, nothing, filth, disease. And this insults our pride. You know, nobody likes being told that they're wrong. I remember a, a few years ago, my wife texted me during the day. She texted me a message, and she said, new rule. <laughs> you know, let's, let's just pause for a second, take a deep breath. <laughs> new rule. And she said, when, when you get home from work, we're all going to put our cell phones underneath the stairs and leave them there. And then she goes on to say, you don't need to text and make calls and take calls all night long. When the kids go to bed, you can return any messages or calls that you want. That was pretty much the message. And so I started my response. I don't take calls all night long. I don't text message all night long. At least I don't sit on TikTok like some other people do. I'm very disciplined with my phone. But here's the thing. I knew she was right. So I deleted it. And with great pain and agony, I sent a thumbs up. Listen, it hurts to humble yourself, doesn't it? When you're corrected, we immediately jump to self-justification, to appeal to our righteous deeds, to show that, no, we are right, to admit that Christ is a Savior begins with the fact that we are wrong. Think about it. That's the hard part. It's, it's hard because it requires of us, it requires Humility. And humility is the hardest thing. It's so painful. But it's the first step to understanding the gospel. Grace, then, is offensive because it offends our pride. I, I heard a joke of a, a salesperson who, who um, maybe it wasn't a joke. It might be a true story. He, he he closed a whole bunch of deals going door to door by showing up and saying, hey, are you interested in buying something? All of your neighbors said that you couldn't afford it. <laughs> I'll show them. What is it? Right? It's your pride that gets you in trouble. It's the, like you've got to show something to somebody else. What, what Paul is teaching us here in Romans 9 is that the Gentiles had attained righteousness, but Israel had missed it. Verse 32. Why? Continues. Verse 32. He says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Paul is going on in the same way that he has been throughout Romans chapter 9, saying that the way things are today is not a mistake. The fact that there is only a trickle, only a, 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 uh, currently a remnant of Jews that are coming to Christ, he's telling the Jew, many Jewish Christians, he's saying that it's not as if God has failed. It's not as if God's word has failed. But he's been showing them through actually quoting a lot of the Old Testament, Hosea and Isaiah, he's been showing them that, that this has always been God's plan. And he continues to do so as he closes the chapter to show us that this has been God's plan. He quotes Isaiah. He actually strings three different quotes. It's the way a lot of the teachers would do back then. Uh, he's not directly quoting any passage from Isaiah, but he's actually taking three passages and like pearls on a necklace, he's stringing them together to make a point. In verse 33, he quotes here Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. He quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23, where God says, I am the Lord, and those who wait on me will not be put to shame. Now, these passages are applied in the life of the Messiah. They're pointing us to the Messiah who is a stone, a precious stone. What he's saying is, is that Jesus Christ has been prophesied all the way back in Isaiah and has been fulfilled today. Jesus Christ is the rock on which you might build your life. He is this rock of refuge. Or another word is sanctuary. Jesus is a rock of sanctuary. Think of like an animal sanctuary. What's an animal sanctuary? It's a big area where animals can kind of, many of them usually are animals that are uh, endangered. They can live and they can play and they can mate and they can have babies and they can grow in a safe space away from the threat of death. Jesus is this rock. He is the sanctuary for us. But he also quotes, though, Isaiah 8.14, which says that he himself, God, now in Christ, will become a sanctuary. That's where I get the word rock of refuge. Jesus is a sanctuary. And simultaneously, at the same time, a stone of offense. He's a sanctuary and a stone of offense. Meaning, Jesus for you is either a rock of refuge or Jesus is a rock of offense. Listen, we are people who have recognized that we are spiritually starving, that we are dying in the freezing rain of our own failure. The thunder of our own disappointment haunts us. The hail of God's judgment is coming. The winds of destruction are all around us. And we are a people who have found Christ to be a rock of refuge. 
In the midst of this storm, we have ran and we have jumped into his refuge and he has covered us under his wings and we have found in him warmth and and love and protection and hope and meaning and worth and value. But, but, you see, if I am self-satisfied in my own righteousness, I find that very analogy to be offensive. Because what you're saying is, is that I've made such a mess of my life, it's as if I'm in a bad storm and need a refuge. And I'm not that bad. Like, I'm, 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 I'm actually a pretty good person who can stand on my own two feet and I don't need a Savior. This is really the issue. I mean, there it is. In our flesh, none of us like to be corrected and told we're wrong. And through much pain and agony, we are called to humble ourselves and come to Christ. But it is just too much for some people to be told that they're doing it wrong. That's too much to swallow. For the the Jews, think think of it. They had to admit that their whole life of Torah following Their whole life of following the Mosaic law, all of their Sabbaths, all of their ceremonies, all of their sacrifices, just every bit of it amounted to nothing before God. And that was too much for them to swallow. I can't believe that all of of this denial of myself, all of this works, all of this works-based righteousness, I can't believe that 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 amounts to nothing. And this is the problem for many today. You know, religious folks, like think of those uh, uh, friends of yours that are Muslim. You know, for them, they have to come to this place of acknowledgement that all of their dietary restrictions and all of their dress and, uh, codes and all of their, the, the whole way of life and all of their prayers uh, and all of their family tradition and culture, like all of that ultimately amounts to nothing before God. That's hard. Uh, think of legalistic Christians who have to admit that all of their Sunday church attendance and all their years teaching Sunday school and all their years uh, 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 giving tithing to their church and, uh, and all of these good things they did, that, that that is ultimately not enough to save them. Think of good moral people who fight for good causes in this world. And they have to admit they have to come to recognize that, that all, of, all, of their, all of their actions, all of their good deeds, all of their opposition of what is wrong, all of their fight for social justice, all of their care for the environment, uh, all of that ultimately amounts to nothing before God. Revolutionaries who have to recognize that all of their fight for cultural transformation counts as nothing before God. Successful people who have to admit that even though they have, they have accomplished many great things and they've, uh, they've, they've, they've accomplished all of their career dreams and they've provided well for their family and even their friends and they have a big house and they look at all of that and, and they're being told that none of that counts as righteousness before God. Think of good parents who have loved their kids, like sincerely just given all of themselves to their kids. Uh, 
and they've seen their kids grow, and they've done well in life, and they're satisfied, and you're, you're telling me that none of that counts as righteousness before God? You see, we are all, we are all prone to be legalists. I think that's like the natural state of humanity. Uh, meaning, like when we read about Jews who are, are, are basing their righteousness on following the law, what I'm saying is, is that we all do it. Everybody tries to, to earn their own righteousness. And we end up with two kinds of people. We end up with prideful people who think they've done it. And we end up with people who are in despair, who, who find themselves worthless. They find themselves hopeless. Well, they're still legalistic, they're just the failed side of legalism. They, just, they're, they're still, they still believe in self-righteousness. They've just uh, uh, self-declined. And so, so here's what I'm saying is, is, why is it then that people find Jesus to be offensive? Well, it's because it offends our self-righteousness. Nobody's righteous through the law. Today, it's a popular idea to believe that people are not interested in Christianity mainly because of Christians. Because Christians are too irrelevant, or too hypocritical, or too judgmental. And there's some truth to that. I mean, there's a sense in which that's true. Like, they should know us by our love. And when they come to our gatherings, our love for each other and our love for them ought to so evidently display the love of Christ that it's compelling and it's attractive. We are not to be ourselves a stumbling block in the way that we live our lives. Paul says a few chapters later in Romans chapter 13, 14, he says, make up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So we should certainly integrate ourselves into, into the lives of others and, and into culture and become all things to all people and not be a jerk and radiate love. But in Romans chapter 9, the primary reason as to why people reject Christianity is because they don't think they need Jesus. Meaning, the primary reason people reject Christianity isn't just because they think the church is filled with hypocrites. Do you know that people have been saved for 2,000 years with hypocrites in the church? As a matter of fact, some of the greatest reformations came out of great hypocrisy in the church. Hypocrisy has ultimately never kept anybody from becoming a Christian. Do you know that people have been saved even though Christians can at times be very irrelevant? I've known irrelevant, culturally irrelevant 80-year-olds who have had a greater impact on a 20-year-old for Christ than any of their peers. Meaning you don't have to become cool in order to promote Christ. You see, here's my point is, if we think the greatest reason people uh, uh, reject Christianity is because we're not cool enough, what are we going to do? We're going to try to be cooler. We're going to try to pre present like a, 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 a little more of a relaxed vibe or whatever. If we think that it's primarily because of hypocrites, we're going to say, you know what? I'm not going to share Jesus verbally. I'm just going to love people 
and just show them by my love. Well, we need to share Christ. Nobody has ever been won over to Christ because I love them so well. It's usually the opposite. I usually have to apologize for my lack of love and say, come to Christ because he saved a scoundrel like me. Here's the point. People primarily reject Christianity because Jesus is offensive. At the end of the day, Jesus offends the fact that they, their, their, their foundation of spiritual life is not found in themselves. Jesus offends the fact that uh, uh, we, we cannot just go to God however we please. He offends our freedom as he requires us to come to him through Jesus Christ alone. Now, I'm not hopeless this morning because in verse 33 he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so as Paul's saying, my heart is that the lost might be saved, he's saying, I think they can. I know they can. Because whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Listen, as we go into 2023 and as we go on mission, let me just give you two applications from this passage as you take the gospel to your lost friends. Number one, be careful to never affirm a faulty confession. It's so easy in our culture to affirm a faulty confession and to never really get to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is what people do with Jesus. And do they really believe that they are a sinner deserving hell and that their only way to be saved is to turn from their sins and trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must labor with our friends. We must sit with them and go deep. We, we must never be satisfied with trite answers. We must dig into their hearts. We must make sure that they understand the difference between works-based righteousness and grace-based righteousness. We must know what, we, they must know what it means to come to Jesus. And secondly, as you speak Christ, say it plainly to them. Like, get to the heart of the issue and be clear. There have been a number of times where I've, I've told somebody, based on what the Bible teaches, you are not a Christian. i got to tell them that because they think they're a Christian. But they're denying the grace of Jesus Christ and faith alone in Christ. They're, believe, they're, they're leaning into their works-based righteousness. So I, I try not to be arrogant or judgmental. This isn't just my opinion. Based on what the Bible says, you're not a Christian. But you can be. And we have to precisely dig in and be clear with our words so that they might know so that if anything, like if sinners must go to hell, let's at least make sure that they know that they're stumbling over Christ. That they come to Christ and they say, no, I can't take that. I remember when Isaiah was a new believer, I asked him for his permission to share this. When Isaiah was a brand new believer, uh, he, had a, he was staying at the mission up here, and one of the preachers at the mission uh, had said, um, that you will be 
that we will all stand naked before God on that day of judgment. Carry on. All right. We will all stand naked before God on that day of judgment. And Isaiah told me that after the, um, uh, after, the, after the sermon, he said all the guys were uh, just standing around debating and ar- arguing with each other as to why it is that God won't even allow us to wear underwear on the day of judgment. And Isaiah came to me and asked me this question. He was like, why, why when we're judged, do you think we won't be able to wear our knickers? He didn't say knickers. I just threw that in. Um, here's my point is we've got to be clear. Like sometimes we'll say things that make sense to Christians, but it doesn't make sense to your lost friends. And I love when Paul's teaching the clarity of it. That Jesus is a stumbling block for you. He's offensive to you. Uh, clearly explain to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we close, let's wrap this up, shall we? Let's watch out for this little girl right here. <laughs> as we close, how shall we live in 2023? Let me just encourage you in this way. Let your heart be similar to Paul's heart on this one. I heard somebody say once, if, if somebody were to write the history of your life, what would they say that you were all about? Were you all about temporal things? Or were you all about the glory of God in Christ? If someone were to say, what is it that, you, that your heart is for? Would they say that as, at least as part of pursuing the glory of God, that you have a heart for the lost? Is that clear in your life? Is that evident in your, in your life, that you have a heart for the lost? In Revelation 7, we get a glimpse of the eternal theme song that we will be singing forever and ever. It says, from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, everybody who is present at the throne where the Lamb is. And he says that they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice he doesn't say big houses belong to our God. Nice neighborhoods belong to our God. Successful careers belong to our God. Having a lot of money on earth belongs to our God. I recently read this book on having a midlife crisis. Not that I'm having one. But I read a book so that I won't have one, all right? And one thing I noticed, I'm reading about an architect who was so miserable in his life because he was never able to design this big, beautiful tower of his dreams. And he, he uh, was relegated to working for a firm designing uh, strip malls. And he just, he just felt like he was living a pointless life. Uh, there was a father who spent all of his life pursuing his his work and, and, and not spending time with his kids. And then as he got older, he was just uh, jaded and filled with regret. And a mother, a wife who believed that if she got married and if she got her own house and if she had her own kids, that she would somehow all of a sudden be happy. And she got all of those things, and over time, she didn't have as great a relationship with her kids as she had hoped, and, and her husband and, and her, they were physically getting older, and, and her, her lovely house was starting to decay, and she was frustrated with life. What is the point of my life? 
As I'm reading these stories, what I realized was this, was that everybody who's having a midlife crisis has been focusing on the temporal. And all I'm saying as we close and as we go into 2023 is what would it look like if we lived today to most impact that day in heaven? How can we live now in 2023 in ways that would prioritize the building up of the church of God on earth so that, so that people might be saved? The stone that the builders rejected, we're told, has become the cornerstone. He is our refuge. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's proclaim his, his name. And let's live now in a way that most glorifies him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this word from, from the scriptures that we would uh, uh, be challenged by God. I, I ask that as we go into this new year, that we, would, that we would understand why our lost friends are missing Christ, and that we would go uh, to them with clarity and with passion, and that we would uh, live our lives today in a way that most impacts eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.